0: So I want to give a um, I, I want to read something about uh, the spiritual self from the from the Onion. Those of you <laughs> know the Onion, very very reliable journalism. It's called "Monk Gloats Over Yoga Championship" <laughs> from Tibet, employing the brash style that first brought him to prominence. Shri Bikram won the fifth annual international yogi competition yesterday. <coughs> I am the same serenest, Bikram shouted to the estimated 200,000 cr- crowd of yoga fans, vigorously pumping his fists. No one is serener than me. I'm the greatest monk of all time. <laughs> Bikram averaged 1.89 breaths a minute during the two-hour competition, <laughs> nearly 0.3 fewer than his nearest competitor, the second-place finisher, the two-time champion, the Hama Gupta. The heavily favored Gupta was upset after the loss. I should be able to beat that guy with one long tide, Gupta said. I'm beside myself right now, and I don't mean trans bodily. <laughs> Bikram got off to a fast start at the Lhasa meet, which, like most major competitions, is a six-event affair. In the first event, he attained total, total consciousness in just two minutes and 34 seconds <laughs> and set the tone for the rest of the meet by repeatedly shouting, I'm blissful, you blissful, I'm blissful, to the other yogis. Bikram, only 33, burst into the international yoga scene with a gold mandala performance at the 1994 Bhutan Invitational. <laughs> at that competition, he premiered his aggressive style at one point in flexibility events, sticking his middle toes out of the yo- other yogis. <laughs> While no prohibition exists against such behavior, such behavior, behavior is generally considered un like <laughs> I don't care what the critics say, Bikram said. Sri Bikram is just going to go out there and do Sri Bikram's thing. <laughs> Um, before the B- Bhutan meet, Bikram had never placed better than fourth. Many said he'd forsaken his rigorous training for the celebrity status according, according, according to his by his Bhutan win, endorsing like, Nike's new line of prayer mats and supposedly <laughs> dating the Hindu <laughs> goddess Shakti. But his, com- his performance this week will regain for him the number one computer ranking and earn him new respect, as well as for his coach. The coach said, my special training diet for Bikram was one of one supercharged, carbo-loaded grain of rice per day it was essential to his win." <laughs> the Buddha was supposed to eat a grain of rice a day for those for, uh, during his ascetic time. And then he goes, in the second event, flexibility, Bikram maintained the lead by supporting himself on index fingers for the next 15 minutes without, while touching the back of his skull to his lower spine. <laughs> the feat was matched by Gupta, who first used the position at the 1990 Tokyo of Zenoff. That's my meditative position of spiritual ecstasy, not his remark, Gupta. He stole my thunder. Bikram denied the charge, saying, Gupta's been talking like that ever since he was a third-century Egyptian slave owner. (laughs) (laughs) And on it goes. So that is the face of spiritual (laughs) onionship. Coming to a stadium... Cable Channel near you, uh, the next yoga c- championship, which is not far away, in fact, there is a yoga championship <laughs> in New York, I just heard about, where you compete for, I'm not quite sure what you compete for, but I think um, how good your yoga, your yoga asana <laughs> practices or something, your mula bandhas and your... So we'll probably be having meditation competitions soon, so, you know, we're, we're expecting a strong camp from the spirit rock crowd, so... <laughs> so get, you know, get at it, and I was at, as I think I mentioned last week, I was at the Wisdom 2.0 conference, it's a techie conference meeting with mindfulness leaders in Silicon Valley, um, uh, so all of the founders of the companies that give us ADD like Twitter and Facebook, and, um, they're trying to bring more mindfulness into their organizations, and hopefully to us, um, and there was a, there, they have these presentations with different companies doing different things related to the meditation field. There's a company, I forget exactly the name, but I think it was a product called Muse. Um, and it's, a, you know, it's one of these brain um, scan uh, gadgetry that tracks your meditation, tracks your brain waves, tracks your concentration, tracks when you're distracted, gives you a readout. So instead of thinking like, well, that was not a bad meditation, you actually get the, you know, computer printer site. <laughs> you think it was good, but actually, <laughs> you, you were only present 2.6% of the time. <laughs> so um, so we're in for an interesting ride in the next five or ten years when this is going to be launched probably in the next year. And, and it will be interesting, actually, for to, to to actually have the immediate feedback about your... Uh, great. <laughs> so a friend of mine's working with a company that's developing a similar thing, and whenever you, so you put the thing on, you put the you listen to the the, the, the meditation and, and do your practice, and then it monitors when you get distracted because it can tell by the brainwave fluctuation when you get distracted, and then that will immediately prompt uh, a, a meditation teacher's guidance to say, now come back to the breath, <laughs> let go, relax. So. Who knows? We'll see if that if that's good or not. It's an interesting, interesting phase we're in. So, um, the reason I read that piece from The Onion was because I wanted to talk a little about the teaching that I was talking about earlier, which is this exploration uh, into the nature of who we are, nature of the self, the, who we take ourselves to be, what kind of identity we pick up as we move through life, who we identify with, how we identify. Um, so I'm curious, just before I go on, uh, any observation from that little exercise we did at the end, where I, mm, as I learned from my teacher, Punjaji in India, I am a meditator sitting here. And we reduce it down to I am, and to I, and then take away the I, and what's left. So any comments? What did you notice? Space. Space? Hmm one word just shout out what is <coughs> limits are removed limits are removed I have different emotional responses to the words different emotional responses to each each word phrase mhm yeah what else when you take away the i presence presence mhm Mm-hmm. Expansion. sense of union. Sense of union. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A heartbeat. Heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Relief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lack of control. Lack of control. That could be a mixed bag, huh? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, so interesting to play with that. process to see what happens when we unpeel the layers that, uh, you know, so that sentence is an example of different layers we add on to our experience and so that's that's just a simple way of removing them and to see what's there when we remove the concepts or labels or (coughs) identifications and often what's noticed is Several people pointing out space, openness, limitlessness, presence, relief, relaxation. Sometimes it can be scary. Sometimes it can feel intimidating because it's unknown. (coughs) What do you mean I take away my usual sense of identity that can be intimidating and terrifying, actually, to the ego that likes the known, that likes the familiar, that likes to know, yep, this is me. I'm here, sitting, meditating, and don't you disturb that point of view, please. That's why often our, um, our egoic mind gets very busy thinking and doing and getting very active when we meditate because actually the, the silence and the stillness is quite intimidating. Ever noticed that? When you start expanding into a more boundless place that you've experienced before, it feels like, uh oh, something's no, gonna end in tears. <clears throat> Even though it might feel exciting, at some point when we reach the bounds of the known, it becomes scary. You familiar with that experience? When we touch that more, yeah. <clears throat> it's actually a good sign. It just means you're you're hitting, you're stretching the the, the familiarity of, of who you take yourself to be. And so that's it's always useful to. And meditation is partly designed to shake up our comfort and our fixed sense of who we think we are because who we take ourselves to be who we think we are is not actually who we are it's just an idea of who we are and of course that idea changes all the time have you noticed our identity is always in flux it's one of the things that Um, one of the characteristics that I talked about last week, that everything is changing, including our sense of self, including our self-view, including our identity, including the way we experience ourselves. It's one of the very reasons that Buddha pointed to seeing through this fixed notion of self was because it's always changing, it's always in flux. It's, It's never the same in any moment, in any two moments. It's always shifting depending on our mood, depending on our thoughts, depending on our experience of the day, depending on many factors. So we live in interesting times where we live in in, in an age of the self, a culture of the self, where the me and my and my personality and what I do and who I am and with especially with with the support of the media and now social media, it's the 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 reification of me being special and different and unique and needing to be broadcast on Facebook to a billion people every day is is kind of different than it has been, you know it's it, every. Few years is sort of an increasing sense (coughs) of uh, uh, focus on self and individuality. And, um, you know, it it has many interesting upsides, but it also has, it creates a sense of needing to project oneself into the world in a certain way. You know, how many people are on Facebook here? Probably a good half of you. The other half are very, very relieved. And <laughs> <laughs> lucky you. I sadly have two Facebook accounts. That's really sad, because I have split identity. <laughs> That's not true. I do. I have a teacher. I teach a page or whatever it is. Um, but it's, it's just interesting, you know, in, in, the, in the magazines, in the way that Hollywood and the media extol certain p- celebrities and selves. And, and then, of course, tears them down in the same breath. Um, and just to see how we put ourselves out in the world. And there's so many mediums now, with Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and all the other variations uh, of, of, of putting an, of our face to the world. Or the, uh, what's that, um, that uh, online um, second, second self? Hmm, second life? Second life, who knows about second life, where you create a whole virtual avatar identity? If you don't like your own? Well, go create a new one. And it becomes, inc- for many people, incredibly addictive. And people, people's lives fall apart because the, the avatar becomes more seductive than their real life. So there's a, and it speaks to the, the longing to be known, the longing to be seen, the longing to be, uh, to, to be recognized in the world. But, it all in, but again, the, the question is the same, no matter what, what the selfing process is like, what, uh, the question is, well, who, who am I in all of that? Am I my Facebook page? Am I my Facebook account? Am I my, twi- am I my tweets? Am I my <laughs> avatar? You know, Will the real me stand up? So, one of my favorite cartoons of late it says, The History of Man, the second cartoon, this little guy is scratching his head going, what the hell is happening here? And the third caption says, The End. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's kind of our life. You get born and then you're like, what? What is this weird thing? called me, my life, my body and then we die <laughs> and we're supposed to somehow figure figure it all out in between the birth and death thing figure out who we are where we're going and so it's a paradox it's a mystery you know, It's this is the, uh, the one of the greater mysteries of life as a human being is the mystery of life itself, the mystery of ourselves, the mystery of who we are, the mystery of uh, being born and dying, the mystery of knowing ourselves, knowing that we're going to die, the mystery of feeling separate and at the same time connected, the mystery of having this awareness that, that can somehow be aware of myself. Sometimes feels the same as who I am, sometimes can s- seem to step back and watch the whole process. Like in meditation, we, set, we sort of settle back in awareness and see this whole dance of thoughts and feelings and memories and plans and burps and belches and breaths and <laughs> coming and going. And it's like, oh, is any of that me? Is that who I am? Has anybody figured, the an- figured it out yet? <laughs> Do you have the answer? Right? As soon as you figure it out, it changes. And then it changes again. So this is one of the more perplexing aspects of the Buddha's teaching. The teachings on self and not self. Let me quote you from him. And... Uh, Well, this will probably make you feel more confused, but that's okay. I have a self. I have no self. It is precisely by means of self that I perceive self. It is precisely by means of self that I perceive not self. It is precisely by means of not self that I perceive self, or this very self of mine, the knower that is sensitive here and there to the ripening of good and bad actions, is the self of mine that is constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity confused? (laughs) This is called a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. Bound by fetters of views, the uninstructed person is not free from birth, age, sickness, and death. So what he's pointing to is the various positions that we can take. I have a self, this is me, this is not me. I'm both, I'm neither. I'm confused, I'm not confused. So once when he was teaching uh, some uh, wanderer ascetic came up to him and, and said, um, I've heard about your teachings and I want to know if you teach that there is a self. And the Buddha sat quietly and didn't say anything. And then the man said, well, is there not a self then? Is that what you teach? And the Buddha sat quietly and then didn't say anything. And the, the man got frustrated and walked off. And under his attendant... I uh, said to him, you know, oh, great, venerable sir, uh, whatever he called him, I don't know. Um, he said, why didn't you say anything? You've got these, you know, you teach, you teach about this. And, and he said, if I'd said there is a self, he would have taken that as a view, and then that would have just been an intellectual position. If I'd said there isn't a self, he would have taken that as a view. And views don't make us any more free. They're just uh, more views and we can stick as many sp- views, spiritual or otherwise, into our backpack of views, it doesn't make any difference. What makes a difference is, is our direct experiential understanding of whether these things <coughs> exist or not exist, or how they affect us if they do. So this is um, perspective from Martha Graham, a wonderful choreographer and dancer and teacher. And she's talking about one perspective on this teaching, which is really about pointing to our uniqueness, that each of us is a unique, unrepeatable set of conditions and circumstances that will never be uh, here again, which makes each one of us incredibly beautiful and amazing. She says, There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action, And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open." So there's a great teaching. It's not our business to compare how it is with other expressions, or whether it is good or not, but to keep the channel open so we can be fully and uniquely ourself, which is a gift to the world, a gift to each other. So how to make sense of this teaching, this teaching on self. The Buddha talked a lot about about our relationship to our identity because he said it was a, it, our attachment to the mistaken sense of <coughs> self is the biggest source of suffering. It's where, it's the origin of our suffering. He didn't say the self doesn't exist per se, but what he's pointing to is the way we take, the way, the, the way we take things to be self, self-process self-identification so and the word identification is a little easier doorway so we identify with things in our experience as who we are so a thought pops up like i'm the best meditator ever lived <laughs> or that person over there is a complete jerk and we identify with thoughts as my thoughts and then we get either elated by them, we get embarrassed by them, we get humiliated by them, if we take them to be who we are, right? So when we're we're meditating and our mind is uh, busy thinking itself into existence, which it does a lot, anybody's mind thinking a lot in meditation? Yeah, did you ask for one of those thoughts to come? Did you direct one of those thoughts? Yeah, I think I'll think about my how low my bank balance is right now. Mm, That's a really good thought. Yeah. (laughs) Or let me worry about my performance who is that's coming up at the end of the quarter. Or I wonder what's for dinner when I get home. I mean, do we do we where do those thoughts come from? Right? The the idea the idea so this is when we, we identify those selves as me. There's an idea that there's some me in here, somewhere, that is creating these things. Yeah, That there's some doer behind it all. So, I'll read something from Time Magazine that will relieve you of this concept, because we always look to Time Magazine as a great source of <laughs> transcendent, <laughs> transcendent wisdom. Um, so, Time magazine, many years ago, did a, re- did a review of the the, sci- the brain, s- brain science on, on the self, studies of the self, and it said, it concluded, after ye- more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain, and it simply does not exist. So there you go, so if Time magazine said so, then we know it's true. So what does that mean, there's no self? I'm clearly here, you know, if you take my car, I'll be really annoyed, um, so we clearly exist. But what does it mean? There's no self. There's no... So when, when, when the Buddha and brain researchers and psychologists are pointing to, well, I should not say psychologists, but certainly brain researchers. Um, What's being pointed to is a, um, is an idea, is, is, a, is an image, a self-image, a self-representation, a, a way that we carry a sense of ourselves in our mind through thought and image and self-representation around as if it's something real, solid and fixed and permanent and enduring in time that we spend a lot of time thinking about and projecting to the world and writing about on Facebook and um, tweeting about. And when we pay close attention to what it's actually referring to, it's not so clear, it's not so obvious what this me is, what this I is. So, and there are times in our experience when uh, the sense of self, the sense of self-concern, self-obsession, self-referencing. Uh, you know, those thoughts always come back to me, like, no matter what's happening in the world, or the economy, or my friends. Well, how's it gonna to relate to me? Right? These are all, for, they're all sort of facets of the selfing process. But there are times when all that just kind of drops away, just like for a few of you maybe it did when we did that little exercise where we where we self where we sort of magically self forget right which is why we like sleep so much because we forget about ourselves we we forget that self preoccupation for 8 hours or however many hours you sleep and it's blissful right it's why we look forward to sleeping right anybody look, craving going to bed ah oh, just f- <laughs> forget about myself, and my day, and work, and this talk, and just, oh, yeah. I don't have to be mindful, I don't have to practice, I just think, you know, zone out, right? It's a relief from the ego. It's like it's a, it's, they call it poor man's nirvana. It's like very <laughs> blissful, you know? And of course, we're in samsara, so, you know, 7 in the morning when the alarm goes off, it's like, oh, right guess what comes back? The, the, that selfing process, right? We wake in a slumber and we, at the beginning we're not really cognizant yeah, of, of ourselves and we're sort of like, you know, it happens to me a lot, I often wake up and like, I have no idea where I am <laughs> and first it feels kind of peaceful and then it feels scary and then, and then I recognize you know, where I am and um, but in those moments prior to waking, there's usually a gap of kind of peacefulness, right? Before me and my life and my story and my dramas come into play. You know that experience? Mm-hmm. It's kind of fuzzy, a little foggy, but it's kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. And then, all of a sudden, uh, God, I'm late for work. Shit. <laughs> God, We've got an early meeting this morning, damn. My boss is going to be there, damn. <laughs> and suddenly the whole machine of who I am and how I am at work and how I look and how I'm perceived and how I want to be perceived, and all of that comes into play. And our, our world goes from quite peaceful, open, spacious to really contracted, it doesn't feel very good. That's the imprisonment, imprison, imprisonment of the, when we self ourselves, when we, when we create an identity that we then have to constantly tend to how am I being perceived in the world? how do I look so following on from last week's talk, the most the, the most the easiest way to to feel into this teaching is to see, pay attention to how your sense of self, your identity, what you identify with, uh, moment by moment changes. Right? So, um, often we, we identify, it, it, it forms based on how we're feeling. Yeah, so we wake up one morning and for whatever reason, Maybe we're hungover, or didn't get enough sleep, or something, and we feel dreadful in the morning, and we feel a little sleep deprived, a little depressed, a little grumpy, and and that becomes who we are. It's like everything looks bleak and gray, and we feel like, we feel depressed. We take ourselves to be the depressed person, and we think about our lives, and it all looks grim, and the day looks dreadful, and you want to throw the towel in, Right, we, when we, we and in that moment, we believe it, don't we? We believe it those those moods. That's that they can be so strong, and we t- and we, it's like, oh yeah, this is. This is who I am. And then you know, when mid part through the day, you get your cup of coffee, and then you get your third cup of coffee, and <laughs> and a few bagels, and suddenly <laughs> and the sun's shining, and it's looking a little brighter. It's like, oh, it's not so bad after all. I'm feeling really. Wired up and I have energy and it's brighter. And, and you take birth as the happy one. Or as the excited one. Or I'm, I'm going to take over the world because I'm now my fourth cappuccino and <laughs> <laughs> And then mid-afternoon, of course we crashed because we've had so much caffeine in the morning and then we back to feeling like, oh, really like, see, I really am the depressed one. <laughs> really is hopeless. And then you know, and that's the, and and we do that. You know, or we get a great email, and we suddenly feel happy and connected and loving. And then we get a nasty email, and we feel we feel cut off and <laughs> distressed, and the world hates us, and um, and on it goes. And and we believe those. They feel very real in the moment. So I was having a, a conversation with a student today, and he was commenting about this. This, this is where. The practice of mindfulness is extremely important in this process of identification, the way we identify with thoughts, with feelings, with ideas, with body size, or whatever wherever we identify. So um, he's standing in line at the airport, and you know, as airport lines can be, they can be stressful because everyone's anxious to get on the plane. No matter how many hours you've left yourself, you just don't know how long that security line's gonna take, and the person behind him was really really anxious and, and distressed and sort of showing that to people around. And, um, and this person was getting agitated by this person's agitation, was about to turn around and give him a piece of his mind. And he caught himself because he'd been practicing meditation and so a little moment of mindfulness and then a little reflection like, oh, I wonder why this person's so agitated. Maybe they're agitated, because they maybe you know, they're late for a plane. So he turned around. Instead of shouting at him, he turned around and said, what's going on? You seem really agitated. And he said, yeah, I've only got 20 minutes for my plane. I've got to get through. And if you can let me through, it'll be great. And so he helped organize the scene so this person could get through to his plane on time. And very different scenario. If he'd identified with his own distress and agitation about the other person's distress, and acted out of that, which we often do, there would have been a little scene. Luckily for him and for everybody else, there was a moment of mindfulness, catching himself. And then, oh yeah, when we, when, we, when we disidentify from our own stuff in that moment, what happens is, oh, there's a whole other world out there. Oh, there's other people. Oh, with their distress. Oh my, we're all in this together, in the line. And don't we hate airports and, and, and these lines we have to? And then there's compassion, or there's presence, or there's generosity, or there's wise action, or there's something. (coughs) So back to this idea of the changing nature of this identity, you know, we can look back in our lives and see, oh, you know, we've had all the different identities that we've had in our lives both as children, as adolescents, and as young adults, and <coughs> adults, and even in, in the space of one day. you know, We may have the, the identity of, in the morning, being a husband or a wife. And then when we go uh, to work, we become you know, an analyst, or a teacher, or a, or a banker, or a social worker, or a teacher. And then at lunchtime, we have lunch with... Uh, family member and become a sister, or brother, or cousin, or... And then we go home, and we go out and do salsa dancing. and we become the hot salsa dancer, or, or whatever it is you do at night. And, you know, so we take, we take all these different identities, and they each feel real in the moment. Who are we in all of that? Are we all of them? Are we none of them? We one particular one. Yes, I like I like myself as a salsa dancer because that's really kind (laughs) of sassy, but I don't like myself as the computer programmer because that doesn't feel really, you know, doesn't feel great. To identify with any of them as who we are is limiting. To identify with anything as who we are is limiting, because we can't put ourselves into a little box because we're so fluid and dynamic. And much vaster than we than we have any idea, most of the time. Most of we live in this little box of me and my thoughts and my little worries for the day, an occasional connection. And but you know we have this vast, boundless dimension too that we sometimes touch when we go out into nature. I was out. I got up this morning and went out paddling, kayaking on the Richardson Bay. Um, and it was a very beautiful, still morning, and just this be- blue sea, calm, stillness. And, um, and the seals were, the sea lions were out feeding on the herring, herring herring that are coming in in big shoals, and one of them bashed into my boat. And and then it was, went out further out into the bay, and it was just calm, stillness, just a sense of vastness. And then this, any sense of self just drops away when we go out into nature like that. When we go out into the ocean, or up in the mountains, or the forests, or. It's just a sense of, someone said, there's a sense of oneness or connection or unity. And that small sense of self just feels completely irrelevant. The self that's worried about whatever it is, money or relationship, just isn't present. And then who are we in that moment? We recognize ourselves as more vast, more open, more spacious, more connected with life. So we all touch these moments at different times, maybe in meditation, maybe in prayer, maybe in lovemaking, maybe when you're listening to your favorite music, maybe when you're creating art, maybe when you're working for some of you, you, the sense of self dissolves and you're just merged with your craft, whatever that is. And what happens when that happens is there's usually a sense of peace. We can see the the equation of the, the level of burden that accompanies identifying with this small sense of self. It's not who we are. We're not this limited person in time and space. We're so much more than that. And these, these the, the life and relationship and nature and things will have, we'll have, be moments where that blows open our view of ourselves. It often happens when, we, when we're faced with tragedy and loss. I have a loved one. Sometimes it's through psychedelics. It's often often the doorway where we shed that usual sense of identity. Um, So many different doorways. This is from Thomas Merton, great Christian mystic. He's writing about one of his experiences. He says, a door opens in the center of our being and we seem to fall through it into immense depths which although they are infinite and they're accessible to us, All eternity seems to have become ours in this one placid and breathless contact. So sometimes a door opens in the center of our chest and we fall into immense depths. and then we come back to the laundry. And then we come back to okay, got to feed the dog. Got to pay the bills. And that's the that's the mystery of being human. We kind of we navigate these different realms. Vast, limited, constricted, connected, fearful, open, closed. Right? And so What I notice with practice is it allows us to be fluid with the whole thing, to not take ourselves too seriously, not to take any one of these things so seriously as who we are. To see how fluid and dynamic we really are. To not need to limit ourselves to any particular thing. This is from the New Yorker, a couple watching TV. This week on the amazing Race to Enlightenment, can Susie and Brian achieve right mindfulness, and will Bob and Candy be eliminated for the relentless clinging to the self? (laughs) (laughs) Coming to a cable channel near you. (laughs) This is this beautiful piece of uh, memorial. I think it's right, Ted Boyd. Mm, Written, I think. In the thirties, as far as I know. Um, Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there, I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond's glint on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn's rain. When you awaken in the morning hush, I am the swift, uplifting rush of quiet birds in circle flight in the soft stars that shine in the night. Do not stand at my grave and cry, I am not there, I did not die. As far as I know, it's written by Ted Boyd, Memorial. So sometimes we glimpse that, this is is another way of putting it. this is from Juan Ramon Jimenez. I am not I, I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and whom at other times I forget, the one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I am not, the one who will remain standing when I die. So let's um, let's do some meditation on this subject. So closing your eyes. Notice when you close your eyes, the body disappears. There's no head, no torso, no arms, no legs. Just sensation coming and going in space. Sounds coming and going in space. Who are you when you don't go to your mind or to the past to sense who you are? Who are you in the immediacy of this moment when you don't look to your mind, to thought, to image, to memory? In this moment, in your direct experience, there's no time, there's just here. There's no past, there's no future, there's just here. Sense that directly, It's just this. If there's no time, then there's no age. If you look, look directly at your experience, is there any age? Or are you ageless, timeless? Is there any gender in this moment? Look directly to your experience. Any race, any color. As you sit Different things may appear on the screen of awareness. Thoughts, images, emotions, sensations, feelings. Is any of that who you are or just passing appearances? Look to awareness itself. This quality of knowing, simply present to experience. But you can't say, I'm that awareness either. Awareness simply is colorless, shapeless, formless, timeless. Kala Rinpoche once said, Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. There is a reality, you are that reality. When you realize it, you will see that you are nothing, and in being nothing, you see that you are everything. That is all. And the Sagadatta put it this way. I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness, love. You may give it any name you like. Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Wisdom says I am nothing. Love says I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. So like everything that we say up here, it's purely an invitation to inquire into. So some of this makes sense, some of this sounds like nonsense. Um, Don't take our word for it. Pay attention, be curious. Be curious about this, this question, what am I? What is this thing called me, called I? Is it solid, is it fixed, is it real, is it impermanent, does it change? Does it come and go? Does it bring happiness, does it bring suffering? What's my relationship to it? What happens when I forget about it? So, purely material for good investigation. I wish you well with that exploration. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.